0: We are jumping into a context this morning in Revelation chapter 9. We are going to read through the chapter. and then we're going to back we're going to get the context of the chapter, just reading through it together. Then we'll back up and really give that overall outline to where we are in Revelation. Um, but this morning, the main ideas I've been traveling through as we've been traveling through this revelation of Jesus Christ, God, from the very beginning, gave me that direction. Keep it all about Jesus every single time. So this morning, I've just titled it, we're dealing with Jesus and repentance this morning in the midst of a really horrific scene that is presented to us. So let's read Revelation 9. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, And he opened the bottomless pit. Guys, just so you know, there's a ring in the room. Um, And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power or authority as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, which is what natural locusts do, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as their king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both of those names means destruction or destroyer. One woe has is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill. A third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads with which they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Well, there's a pleasant passage. Re- Revelation is, it's, it's very hard. If you lose focus on who Jesus Christ is, on his word, again, his word from Genesis to Revelation, getting the full theme and the full perspective. If you just drill down and only hang out in the details of this, it's, it's really messy and it's really icky, and that's why, again, we're, we're gonna focus on Jesus and repentance this morning. We're gonna pick through a lot of the imagery, but I want to give you just that whole idea of what God is doing at this point in human history the goal is for human beings to turn to him in repentance and repentance has everything to do with a change of mind a change of heart a change of life which all of us are incapable of doing apart from his grace so as we depend upon his grace and we have that first moment of repentance we turn to him but here this the testimony is in the midst of this horror, the hardness of the human heart refuses to repent, refuses to turn. And we'll sit in this imagery in its thickness, but I want you to keep that whole idea of his goal in the midst of all of this is to capture the human heart for eternity. And those who refuse, those who refuse to repent abide in eternity in torment, which this is a description. This is a... a, a, a a small taste of what that eternal torment of separation would look like. It's, it's, it's a miserable description. So here's where we are in Revelation. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. It is all about him. It is unveiling him. In chapter 1 of Revelation, he is unveiling himself and his glory and his majesty, but not only as the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth, But also, our God became a man. Our God tabernacled. He dwelt as a man. He became just like us in this flesh. And he lived in our midst. But the image that's given in Revelation 1 isn't just the human Jesus. It's the human Jesus and the divine Jesus as one. And all of his attributes is that description that we are given. Then as he gives John these words to convey to these churches that are in Asia Minor, these seven churches... Again, that theme of repentance comes out for, every single, for the five churches that he has an issue with where there is something that needs to be corrected. That correction, the words that come out of Jesus' mouth, his exhortation is to repent. And again, that idea of repentance, it's a change of mind. It's a change of your perspective, how you think. It's a position of surrender. It's a, it's a position of acknowledgement that I am off here, and I'm being convicted through the Spirit and through the grace of God, through His love and action in my life. And I am looking to Him to transform. I'm looking for Him to, to reveal to me where I'm off and reveal to me how He is going to fix that through His love through faith and trust in him, through continual submission to him. These, again, these are the exhortations that he's giving to these churches that he's rebuking in 2 and 3. And there's lots of promises in there. There's lots of encouragement. But this morning, we're just looking at this word. To the churches that he had problems with, the idea of repentance came up in all five of them, five of the seven. The other two, he didn't have a, 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 an exhortation of repentance to those two chapters four and five we have this shift from current time so to say and our relationship with jesus to this time of the future where john is taken into heaven and he is given this vision whether he says you know whether he's taken in the spirit so he's not taken there physically but he's given this vision of the almighty god on the throne and it's not a physical description of what God looks like, but it's, it's all these symbols and these pictures. And God is described as light. It's powerful. Chapter 5, we have this, this understanding that only Jesus is worthy. He is the one who is worthy to be worshiped. He is one who is worthy to live for, to die for, to worship, to sing, to follow, to listen to, to submit to. He is the only one who is worthy to open this document, this scroll that has these seven seals. And this document, whatever it may be, whether it's a title deed and a land deed in, in the imagery of that culture, whether it's a marriage contract, again, in the imagery of that culture, as he begins to open the seals every single one of those openings becomes a judgment. And those sealed judgments, it's a judgment on humanity. And again, the, the judgments are being poured out so that human beings would turn to him in repentance in that time and for us to turn to him in repentance today. But as he opens up every single one of those seals, there's, a, there's an action that occurs, whether it's a heavenly action, whether it's an action on earth, whether it's an action through... Um, through men and women and economy and military and government powers and religion, regardless of what all that imagery is wrapped up in, these these judgments begin to pour out. And as these judgments are poured out again, we see it within government, we see it in a conqueror that goes out, we see war, we see famine, we see cataclysmic things happening in the heavens um, that have consequences on earth, this impacts economy. This impacts life. This impacts when I say life, not just daily life, but people's physical life, where a quarter of the human population is executed. And those four, first four, uh, they're they're linked. The first four seals are linked. The next two are more independent, and that seventh seal becomes that introduction to the seven trumpets, which is what we're sitting in now. So the, the seven trumpets that we covered a couple of weeks ago, the first four, again, they're, they're linked together. Uh, they're, it's, it was all this judgment upon the physical earth and then as we sit in these three different woes, the fifth and the sixth trumpet are the two woes that we just read through. There's going to be a, uh, a, a segue for a period of time before it deals with the seventh trumpet, and then we'll get into the bowl judgments. But as we sit in all of this, again, we want to sit in the heart and mind of God of why he's doing these things and the description that is being given. But at the end of chapter 8, he sends an angel to pronounce this woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And what we just read through is these first two woes. And a woe is something that is it's painful. There's suffering that's associated with it, a great amount of displeasure, discouragement, pain. When you tell somebody, woe, it's no joke. So chapter 9, when the fifth angel sounds, he sees this star fallen from heaven. The verb there for fallen, it is, it is a past tense verb. So it's something that's happened in the past and it's been completed. So because it says, because the language says to him, not to it, we are understanding it, that this is a fallen angel. And often, when you sit in the imagery in the Old Testament, stars refer to angels. So here, the the understanding is that this could be a description of Satan. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. In Revelation chapter 12, we're going to get to it. There is a war in heaven. There's a question of whether it's past, present, future. But in that war, Satan is cast out. He is that future tense of it. He is cast out and no longer allowed access before God to accuse us before God day and night. And there is a warning to the inhabitants of the earth at that time that Satan knows his time is limited. And he's going to be fully unleashed. So there's many interpreters of this that are going to see this star as Satan himself. But with that, whenever you give, whenever you interpret something one way, you need to be consistent in your interpretation uh, as applied elsewhere. So in Revelation 20, John sees an angel coming down from heaven, not fallen, but coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit. So in this scene, when he comes with the... this angel comes with a key to the same pit, he's got a great chain in his hand, and he's going to lay hold of Satan and chain him up for a thousand years. So when we hit, sit here in chapter 9, if we say this is Satan... We can very quickly see he's not given like permanent access, the key is authority. You have the authority to unlock something. And at this time in future history, it seems as though Satan or another fallen angel is given access, given the authority to go and open up this place that's called the bottomless pit here. And the bottomless pit is a word of interpretation. It's literally the word for the abyss, and it's a place of torment. Remember in the Gospels when uh, Jesus casts the demons out of, uh, out of a man, and they don't, uh, they don't want to be tormented and has to be sent into the pigs? Totally weird story. But they say to Jesus, they don't want to go to this place. And this is where you sit in very limited information do we have about about the order and structure of angels. Very little information do we have about their ability to rebel. Our understanding from the word of God is a third of the angels that he created are in rebellion against him today. When you sit in the time of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6 talks about the violence and the wickedness and the imagination of man's heart. And he uses this phrase, it talks about the sons of God going into the daughters of men. And this is, this is, this is really weird, but it seems as though angels have the ability to procreate. How is that possible? I have absolutely no idea. I have a great big question mark. It's super weird. But not only do we sit in Genesis 6, where it seems that these rebellious angels were having wicked relationships with human beings and they were producing offspring, that that wickedness is something that God isolated that kind of wickedness and that kind of rebellion into this place, into this specific prison. We see... Peter talks about that in Second Peter. Jude talks about that in Jude. There's other extra-biblical writings, specifically in Enoch, which, again, it's not the Word of God, but it gives you an understanding of the religious teaching of the day and that culture's understanding of the spiritual realm. It is super weird. It is super uncomfortable. Um, and we're left with a variety of question marks where a lot of this is just open-handed that sounds everything that I just sounds really weird I know Um, but it's what the Word of God says and it's what communicates and we have very little understanding I bring all that up to say is it describes the nature and the character of the creatures created beings that are in rebellion to God that are in this place that a wicked angel or Satan himself, God is giving access to go and unleash that, to go and open the door of this place of torment, of this prison, to go and have access and controlled and restrained access to human beings. So when you sit in this idea that these... This pit is opened, smoke billows out and, and all the imagery of it. Um, remember this as we talk about the spiritual plane and the spiritual realm, Like, as we talk about this bottomless pit, there's an idea that, yes, it's a physical place, but at the same time, it's a spiritual place. So, yes, it's under the earth in some fashion, and when this door gets cracked open, there's smoke, physical smoke that is billowing into the sky, but at the same time, it is a spiritual place where these are spiritual entities that are coming out. These entities, these what we would define as demons, that we would define as fallen angels that are in rebellion against God for whatever reason. They are given the authority to go and harm and possess men. And when you sit in the gospels, there's a lot of discussion about demon possession and what that looked like and how Jesus freed men and women from demons that possessed Possessed minds, possessed hearts, possessed bodies to the point where human beings, they didn't have control over themselves. Another entity had control over them, and an evil entity, right? That's the description that we have. When we become believers in God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are told that the Holy Spirit indwells us, seizes control. Not that we're robots, but he has possession of us. We are sealed by him. That means that These demons no longer have access to control us. So this control, the description that's given of human beings, of the torment that these demons are able to enact upon human beings, that the human beings, they lack possession of their faculties to be able to take their own life. The possession of these demons over these human beings, it's to harm them, it is to torment them. These are beings that have lived for millennia in their own torment and rebellion, and they hate God and they hate you. And we sit in this, well, why, why would God unleash this in humanity? The torment, the twisting The wickedness, the the life of these beings, these creatures. This is the result of sin. This is this is the result of rebellion against your creator. It starts easy. It starts in usually simple forms. It starts in God may say this, but I want to do that, so I'm going to do it my way. The Bible very clearly tells us that there is pleasure in sin. There's pleasure until consequences start coming. And again, there's and often we don't change behavior and we don't allow God to correct us until an explosion just happened in life, and then it's oh God, oh God, oh God, save me now, save me now, saving it right. And if we are comfortable in our lives, we're comfortable in our skin, we're comfortable in. Uh, the provisions that we have in life, we're comfortable in job, marriage, kids. If Whenever we are comfortable, often we start to drift away from God because we become self-sufficient. Everything's okay. But then the boom happens, and what does the boom cause us to do? Drives us to God. And that's what this boom is doing. That's what this woe is doing. God's not some maniacal being in heaven giggling and at watching human beings being tormented by these wicked creatures God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked God does not take pleasure in torment God's giving us a description of the ultimate result of sin, which is separation from God and how it becomes twisted and morphed and greater over time. It's what becomes big. It's what becomes dominant. It's what is overruling. And these creatures are so disappointed in God and they are so disappointed in themselves, all they want to do is destroy. They have over them as king a a fallen angel some believe it's satan himself i think this is another angel that has this position that has the name abaddon in hebrew napoleon in the greek in the old testament you will often see the the old testament word for the grave for hades for hell is sheol you'll see sheol and uh, this Abaddon to get linked together multiple times in the Old Testament where hell and destruction are linked in idea and reality. These human beings, those who dwell on the earth, again, it's a description of those who are in rebellion against God. They will seek death, but because they are possessed by another, They'll be unable to take their own lives, which is just, it's, it's a, in, in our minds and culture and life, and this is not just America culture, this is, this is just in humanity. Often humans see death as an escape. And again, what's being revealed, death is not an escape. Jesus gives a teaching in Luke, in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man was evil. He goes to a place of torment. Lazarus dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, this this holding tank of paradise before Jesus ascended to heaven. Again, the description, it's, it's a place of torment. It's a place that the demons are aware of, and they didn't want to go there before their time. It's a place that human beings are aware of and we'll try and uh, make it as comfortable as possible in our thought process because when we sit and really meditate and think about what God is saying, it is a place of torment. It is a place of rebellion. It is a place of wickedness. However, look at God's grace because even here, as God is pouring out this judgment, this woe, those who are in rebellion against him there's a restriction and that restriction is that they're not allowed to kill because the purpose of repentance it's not to execute and then the position of those who have a relationship with God at this time who are sealed there are some who think this is only the 144,000 that were sealed in chapter 7 there are others, and I sit on the other side, that all of those who have faith in Jesus in this day, we are told that by having faith in Jesus, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, so I don't think that this is just limited to the 144,000. I think that this will be a, a, uh, a seal of protection from these demons, just like you and I are sealed today from the activity of Satan. Oh, he's alive, he's active, he oppresses, he lies, he whispers, he seeks for you to rebel against God, he seeks to give you false doctrine, he tries to take from you, he tries to convince you that God's a monster and you know, just do things your way and everything will be okay. All those lies are still there today, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we are free from that being's control. We are told that prior to having faith in Jesus Christ, every single human being is dead in their sins, is a child of God's wrath, and your king outside of Jesus is Satan. He's your father. Again, these are the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. This isn't, I'm not making these things up. These are, this is what the word of God teaches to us, and that it's through repentance. It's through the revelation of that grace of God that captures our attention, that causes us to turn to him, that looks for freedom. I'm no longer chained and bound by this being and this being's lies and this being's wickedness and not only this being but my own issues. I am now free and at liberty and all that is wrapped up into his amazing grace. All of these uh, in verse 7 and on, John is given this vision of these demons are described to be like locusts. These locusts are like horses. They have faces that are like men. Crowns that are like gold. Hair like women. Teeth like light. There's all this imagery that he's using. And this is what's complicated about Revelation. If you lose sight of Jesus... There, there are a hundred different opinions on what all of this symbolizes. Those who sit in a historical interpretation that this is describing some historical event, they latch on to different armies of the past. The major army is those who followed Muhammad because they were at war with the eastern half of the Roman Empire for 150 years. And how do you get 150 years? Well, that's five months, you know, every day being a year. Anyway, you get into all these weird twists and turns, and honestly, I don't see it. For those, there's a, there's many in like a futurist camp, which I am in, that look at this and say, well, there might be a description of modern warfare here. I see that, especially as we get into the description in the in the sixth trumpet, which we'll get into in a minute. That idea popped out of Hal Lindsey in the '60s and '70s, and there's there's an understanding there that this might be what John is seeing 2,000 years ago. He's looking at modern warfare, and he's giving words that he has to be able to describe that i i would hold that really loosely to me this is this is none this is demonic and the description that is being given just like jesus was given these descriptions about his physical form the descriptions that are given about his physical form they're metaphors it's imagery to describe his nature and his character So the imagery that's being given here, my understanding is that it's offering to us images uh, to, to help us to have insight to the nature and character of these demons. And in the Old Testament, a locust stands for an army. When locust, in fact, there were, I didn't look it up to see when, but there were news articles just a few months ago about locusts blowing through this same area of the world. When locusts come through, it is, it's a massive army of insects that covers the land, and they eat everything. This is a major plague of this area of the world when you don't have the world system to help supply food and supplies that these creatures would consume. You're left to death and famine when, these, when this locust army would march through in, in history. So again, my understanding is that it's an imagery of what this demonic horde looks like. When it talks about crowns, there's some kind of, and it's it's not a crown of power; it's a crown of victory that they're going to that they have this. They're going to have victory over men, not to kill but to harm. In these five months, face like a man. Uh, for a creature to have face like a man is providing that imagery. There's intelligence there. It's not just a beast, a thoughtless animal, but there is intelligence there. Hair, the long hair of a woman in this culture in this time, it's going to talk about often. It's going to talk about seduction. This is why often in these cultures, a woman's hair was to be covered, because it's like ladies showing a little bit too much skin. In our culture, where that was a, a an imagery of seduction for that culture, that these demons were they're seducing human beings into their rebellion just as we see Satan do today their teeth like lions a lion again Jesus is identified as the lion of the tribe of judah so the imagery of a lion is used for Jesus what does that imagery represent majesty authority power a lion is the king of beasts always has been in that imagery imagery again these demons they're going to have a majestic authoritative, victorious power as they are harming human beings. But their power is to only hurt, not to kill, and their king is the destroyer. So the sixth trumpet, this is just as weird. There's a couple of side notes that I want to, just to point out for you to meditate on. Because when the sixth angel sounds in verse 13, what, John's hear, hear, what John hears is a voice from the altar, and the golden altar, and that's, that's that altar of prayer, that's the altar of incense. We've already seen this imagery multiple times in Revelation that God listens to us. He hears your prayers. He stores your prayers. He acts to your prayers according to his will in his time. Sometimes he answers no. Sometimes he answers wait. Sometimes it's yes. But here again, God, in this trumpet judgment, there is an aspect of the prayers of human beings that God is responding to as this unfolds. The sixth angel not only sounds the trumpet, he is the one and goes and releases these four specific angels that are considered to be wicked angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. For this culture and this time, if you go look up where the Euphrates River is as it travels through Iraq, it was the border from the east and the west at this time. It was a natural military border. The Assyrians had to cross over the Euphrates River to come down into Israel. The Babylonians had to cross over this river to come into Israel. As, as uh, Alexander the Great went from west to east and conquered, this is a river he had to cross over. As the Romans are sitting in this, the, the Parthians are the, the Iranians of the day. They had to cross over this river as they have war against the nation of Rome. It's seen, it's seen as the border. But when you sit in its imagery throughout the Old Testament euphrates is mentioned as one of those rivers that divides out of the river that flowed out of the garden of eden this river becomes the foundation for man's rebellion against god you sit in the post-flood world and you sit in the established as the nations are being established it is in this area of the world as you sit in the character Nimrod, who became a mighty hunter, not a hunter of just animals, but a hunter of souls, so to say. He established the city of Babylon, which plays through Revelation. He established the city, the city of Assyria. In the establishment of these cities and these governments is also the establishment of economies and religions. So Euphrates, this this border. This is uh, Abraham lived on the opposite side of Euphrates when God called him out of his family, out of his culture, out of his idolatry to himself. It's, it stands as that border between playing in the world and walking with God. And here, whatever, there's, there's four angels that they are bound there right now. And there is, a day, there is an hour, there is a moment on God's clock in his time, the hour, the day, the month, the year, where these are going to be unlocked, unchained, and they get to go do what they were prepared to do. And in their preparation, it talks about an army of 200 million. In 1965, China claimed that they could field 200 million soldiers for war whether true or not true. Again, there's, there's an idea. Is, is, is this 200 million man army, is this only referring to a physical army, or is this demonic? This is where it talks about the, the vision of these horses, and these riders are all on horses. It's not just 200 million men, but it's 200 million horsemen. Talks about fire and smoke, brimstone is sulfur. So you can all picture a tank firing and watching the fire and the smoke and the, the smell of gunpowder and sulfur. You can, you can see that imagery. So there may be, it may be a description of modern warfare. It might not be. Um, I hold that very loosely and I just lean towards, again, that demonic influence. All I know is that the imagery in this, it's very hard to say exactly this is that. So I try not to say this is that, and I try and pay attention to what is Jesus attempting to convey in all of this. And the conveyance to me is he, through our faith in him, he seals us. Through our faith in him, not only does he prepare the the hour and the day and the month and the year for the, the activity of these angels, He prepares, how many events has he prepared for you since the foundation of the earth? I I have a sequence of experiences as I have walked with God where I have confidence at that hour, on that day, that month, that year, He wanted me to have that conversation. He brought that person into my life. He gave me that understanding from his word. He spoke that verse to me so that I could hear and know and understand. He had the day of my salvation when I bent my knee to Jesus in repentance. He had that moment prepared for me. That, that to me, brings a great deal of comfort in the midst of the passion and in the midst of a passage that only describes horror to me and torment. And here's the contrast. When we are exposed to these kinds of things, we have two different options in our relationship with God. And that option, human beings are afraid of God at this moment. We have already had the passage earlier where they are saying, hide us from the face of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know exactly where this judgment is being sourced from and they refuse to repent. There is a great deal of fear. These human beings want to die and they can't because they don't possess their faculties. I can't imagine that kind of torment. They fear God. But what do you do with your fear? Does God's grace hand fear to you like trembling, trepidation, or does the grace of God hand to you peace? I mean, really, really, just, really just sit in. it. What is it that he has saved you from? How is it that he exposed the gospel to you? Um, I'm not going to go. If you're taking notes, I want you to write these passages down because we don't have enough time to go and look at them. Uh, But one, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus starts his public ministry. The words that come out of his mouth to human beings, repent. He said, repent to Peter. He said, repent to John. He said, repent to the Pharisees. To everybody that listened to his voice, Jesus, out of his mouth flowed the command for us to repent, to be changed. And there's a reason, because God's kingdom is coming. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that's the day of Pentecost, as the culture is responding to Peter preaching, what do I do? Repent and be baptized. The baptism is immerse yourself into the identity of Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter is there preaching to the people again. Repentance. In Acts chapter 8, 22, that idea of repentance. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, where Paul is before Agrippa, and he's telling Agrippa, God gave me a vision. He gave me an understanding of what it is that he prepared for me to do and I was faithful to do it. And Paul says, I was faithful to go and present the gospel. I was go- faithful to go and tell the people whether Jews or whether Gentiles to repent. And again, this is everything that Jesus is attempting to do with the culture at this time is to well up repentance. Now, is repentance a singular act or is it an ongoing act? Often we think it's singular. That call to repent, is, it's the call to the unsaved. It's the call to those who have not come to Jesus in faith. It's your call to let God change your mind and transform you and bring you to that position to free you from your death and to give you his life. To understand that when he died on the cross, he was doing it out of grace and out of love for you to free you from the torment of what we just read through this morning. This proclamation of the gospel, the good news, it's, it, it is all a proclamation of God's incredible grace. But mixed up in that, there's this call to repent. And not just repent, but now as you've repented and are repenting to go and do good works. And Ephesians talks about that, that you know, we're, not, we're not doing good works to earn favor with God. We're just doing those things that God has prepared for us to do today. And we're not to get bent out of shape. He is going to produce his fruit in our lives. But when we talk about repentance, often we think about that historical event, that moment of salvation, that day when I turned from death to life, that day when I was unshackled from sin and I have freedom. How many of you have struggled with sin after that moment of salvation? How many of you need to turn from anger? How many of you need to turn from lust? How many of you need to turn from materialism? How many of you need to turn from being selfish? How many of you need to turn from judgment, from gossip, from slander? In the description that we're given here, the men and women on the earth in those days who refused to repent, they refused to, ta- they refused to turn away from a religion that culture and themselves had created for themselves whatever system of comfort, whatever, whatever system is there that they feel that their life and their happiness is wrapped up into, the Bible reveals to us all false religion. It's wrapped up in the deception of demons, Satan himself as the head. That's in those deceptions, in those false religions are murders, Whether it's violence of humans towards other humans in warfare and government structure, whether it's physical violence of taking another person's life, whether it's abortion, you can sit and murder in every single context and how it plays out. When it comes to the word sorceries, that's drugs. And this isn't just recreational drugs. We can abuse prescription drugs. There are all kinds of drugs that a doctor will hand to you to make you just as numb in your mind, in your life, as POTS or any other drug will do to you. They refuse to turn off these, these drugs. It's a way to free your mind, man. And you get to have all these wonderful spiritual thoughts about who you are and your navel and all this kind of, right? Everything that the new age of the 60s and 70s has handed to us as our culture sits in its religion of drugs that still sits in vibrantly today. Thefts, stealing. Can you, can you imagine the the... If you were without provision, uh, uh, Edward that was here last week talking about South Sudan where 97, it's 97% unemployment rate, how do you provide? How do you get food? I can't, I can't imagine the thefts that have to go on in that culture just to provide for their basic needs. The description of human beings... Outside of God's grace and the salvation that he provides is Revelation 9. Miserable. And as we continue to travel on in this revelation of Jesus Christ, he reveals to us what repentance brings about. Again, he exposes his grace to us to begin with every single day to to repent, have a change of mind, be transformed. There's a process in that relationship where repentance is daily. I am constantly turning away from me. Lord, I need to constantly turn away from my culture. I need to constantly be made aware of what the schemes and actions of the devil are so that I can remain in your grace and understanding your love and your power, your sovereignty, your control, your beauty, your majesty, your life, what you freed me from. Again, these are not just cliche religious terms like these are words of truth that jesus is revealing not just to a future culture not just a historical culture but to us today so that we would live a life dependent upon him in constant repentance look to him for constant cleansing to confess to him that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness he tells Peter Peter you don't need to be baptized again you just need a little washing today and how beautiful it is worship team come on up so father again we just we want to press into truth we want to come in in our minds and our hearts before your throne that is defined to us as the throne of grace. We are told that we have access to you, that you hear our prayers through the death, burial, resurrection, through the life of your son. That imagery for me, Lord, it, it, it always, it, there's a turning into you. There's, there's, a, there's that word repentance. I'm turning into you now, Lord, to be transformed into the image of Christ. I'm turning into you today, Lord, because I need this area of my heart dealt with. I don't want to have a hard heart like Pharaoh. I don't want to have a hard heart like the description of the human beings that we just read this morning. I want my heart to be in a condition that receives not only your word, Lord, but your authority and your power. Lord, you just don't tell me things for me to go out and do in my self-effort. But you tell me to follow you and to walk with you and that you'll make me to be who I need to be in that day, in that hour, in that moment. Such a, it's such a powerful position of trust to me. As we turn to communion, Lord, each one of us, as we grab this bread that represents your body that you gave for us for the remission of our sins, as we take this cup, which is an image of your blood that was poured out, Lord, that we, in that imagery, it's your lifeblood that was poured out for us, that we could be made white and clean and pure in your righteousness. We're turning away from ourselves and we're turning to you because we want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to hear you. And Lord, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that we don't have to come to you as beggars before we even ask you. You know what we need. You know the thoughts of our hearts. You know our struggles. You know our fights, Lord. You know our joy, How wonderful it is to know that you know us and you still love us. How wonderful it is to know your protection, your provision. How wonderful it is to know that, regardless of what my context looks like, you and you alone are God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, not my imagination. Thank you for saving me from the torment that we read through this morning. We worship you, we honor you, we value you. Free us from all. Bind us to yourself, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.